Welcome to Beyond the Lines. I'm your host, Jason Davis. You can follow this podcast on Facebook at Beyond the Lines Podcast, on Instagram, Beyond the Lines Podcast, on X, formerly known as Twitter, at underscore Beyond the Lines, and also on TikTok at Beyond the Lines Podcast. Also, if you have any questions, idea, or show suggestions, you can email me at btlpodcast213 at gmail.com. If you like the content I create and what I'm building here at Beyond the Lines, I ask that you support the show by making a small donation. All you have to do is click on the support the show link in the show notes and donate. If you donate, you'll get a shout out in a future episode, and I thank you in advance. This is episode number 72, and today I will be discussing adolescent or teen weight loss. So now, let's meet this episode's guest. My guest is a pediatric endocrinologist and the co-founder of the Endocrine Co. in Orlando. Dr. Pauly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you for coming back. I think you're on the show more often than I am. <laughs> it was good to have you back. <laughs> so thank you. you're welcome. So today we're going to be talking about adolescent or teen weight loss. You know, it's one of those situations or topics that obviously has been around for a number of years. And there's always a talk about getting teens healthy, getting them active, getting them away from the TV and video games and all those things, and also helping them fight uh, juvenile diabetes and things like that that we've talked about. So again, today we're going to talk about weight loss and what kids and families can do to help teens get in better shape and some of the treatments that they have out there for them. So again, I'm glad to have you on to talk about that. Awesome. Yes. We've all heard about BMI. What basically is BMI and how is it calculated? Yeah, so in children, we talk about BMIs in percentage. So in adults, we talk about like a number, like BMI that is greater than 25, for instance. And these numbers are extrapolated based on the relationship between how tall you are and how much you weigh, essentially. And so when you have that number extrapolated, anything over 25 is considered overweight. Anything over 30 is considered obese category. And then there's different classes, class one, two, and three. In pediatrics, in kids, we don't necessarily use the numbers. We use percentage. So we have just like growth chart for height and weight. We have a curve for BMI. And so a BMI greater than 85th percentile, it's going to be considered overweight for age. And greater than 95th percentile, it's going to be considered obesity in kids. Okay. And I know you've probably come across this in practice. How do you calculate that or how do you determine if a kid is obese or not when you have a kid who, say, is 14, 15 and is very muscular or very active, but their their percentages are high versus a kid who may actually be overweight, may have more adipose tissue? So how do those two correlate? I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of the BMI as a metric because, to your point, it's not a fair metric. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And there are different ethnic groups and depending on your body composition, that BMI number is going to be skewed. So like you mentioned, if you're very muscular, if you're very tall in certain groups like African-Americans and Hispanics, our BMIs tend to be a little bit more skewed to the right. So pushing you to a higher BMI. So recently, actually, the American Medical Association 
decided that the BMI is not going to be a metric that we're going to be using for much longer. They don't think like it's a one size fits all anymore, but everything in medicine takes time to be adopted. I think with time, we will be able to phase out of using it. But as of now, we still use it. Unfortunately, even when we talk about therapy, medications with families, adults, children, it doesn't matter. Insurance companies dictate that based on, you know, using BMI as a criteria, unfortunately. Now, the new metric that you're talking about, what is that new metric going to be? And do we have an idea of when that may be coming out? I don't know exactly when that is going to be facing out, really, BMI. They're not necessarily telling us what we're going to be using. Personally, in my practice, I use a body composition scale, which essentially is like a fancy name for a scale that tells you how much percentage of your weight it's in the muscle compartment, how much is fat compartment, how much is water, and so forth and so on. And I feel like, I'm sure you've heard the scale is a liar. It is true because if your body composition is more robust on the muscle, you're going to be, quote unquote, having a heavier weight and being categorized as a overweight person or obese person. However, your body composition may be pretty much just muscle, which is a really good thing for so many reasons. In the world of athletes, right? Like the more muscular they are, the stronger they are, the endurance is better. But from my standpoint, the metabolic aspect of it, you know, the more muscle you have, the more efficient your insulin work is, the less insulin your body needs, which means the less storage in the fat is happening because the muscle is by far the most metabolically active organ. Now, I know years ago, they used to use a thing called the pod or or something along those lines, where they used it to get a real accurate measurement of someone's body weight, where you would get into this, I guess it's more like a capsule, and you would get into water. So what are some of the techniques nowadays that they use to measure your body weight and your BMI versus just stepping on the scale? I mean, still BMI is just being calculated based on your height and weight, unfortunately. What I typically use on my practice is going to be the body composition scale. Like I said, it's going to give you that breakdown of your body. And then I compare, let's say that you come and see me. We compare you with you again next time that you come and see me. And then we just compare your muscle mass. Is it more? Is it less? In percentage and in pounds. And how about your fat mass? Percentage and pounds. Compare this visit with your previous visit. I also tend to do uh, metrics. So I use a very simple tape measure, okay? Mm -hmm. And we measure dimensions. And for instance, when we talk about by far the most important metric to get is the waistband. The waist circumference is going to be super important because like I was saying, insulin is a storage hormone. So one of the places where we store the most fat, it's going to be on the organs that are in our abdomen. So have you ever heard of that phrase, skinny fat? Person that is slim, but they tend to have a big belly. Okay. So that person compared with somebody who's like really obese all over, it's going to be for me as a doctor, more concerning about, I'm going to be more concerned about the health of that person versus the person that is not necessarily just in the belly, because it's telling us that they have a lot of visceral fat, which means that person is at higher risk of metabolic complications like insulin resistance, like diabetes, like high blood pressure, cholesterol, and girls, PCOS. So, I mean, there is so much more telling just from med 
measuring the waste. And that is something that to me is so much more telling that having you stepping on the scale or calculating your BMI, that doesn't always tells you the whole picture. Absolutely. Again, we're talking about teens and adolescents. So what is a good age for kids and and families in general to have their kids start to get tested for BMI, body weight, and whether they're overweight or not? What's a good age? So we can calculate BMI as early as two years old. And again, in kids, we do it based on their age. So that BMI for age is going to compare kids that are the same age. If you take 100 kids, you're comparing them with 100% of kids that are the same age as your patient. Again, the problem is that a lot of factors can influence on that BMI, obviously nutrition, but also ethnicity, muscle mass, and body composition. So all of these things are really not being considered on BMI. The only two things that we keep in mind are how much you weigh and how tall are you? So if you come from a very muscular family, but in the petite side, your BMI is going to be skewed automatically. Okay. In an effort to lose weight, what is a good amount of weight per week a teen should lose? And that goes along with for uh, teenagers and for adults, we really should try to not be losing a lot of weight too fast because then weight is compounded by not only fat, we're also talking about muscle all along. So if you're losing anything more than two pounds a week, you are potentially losing muscle on that weight loss. And that is one of the things that actually happened with a lot of the injectables that are very popular now, the GLP ones, brand names are Ozempic, Wegovy, that a lot of people start these medications, which are great, Jason, don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan, but the problem is, if you're not being monitored appropriately, it's not being prescribed correctly, you can be losing way more than just fat, going into losing muscle, skin starts getting saggy, you know, the person completely loses the appetite. Like they are so, so, so suppressed that we're going from one end of the spectrum, which is like the overweight, obese patients that are eating a lot to the complete opposite spectrum where they don't eat at all and they don't want to eat at all. So now we're like pushing into a disorder eating per se. Right, right. Now, I know there's a lot of different images and things that you see on social media. How has that played a role in teens losing weight in in your practice and what you've seen from teens? Yeah, so I think a lot is just like educating. Educating the patients is going to be key for the success of the therapy long-term and short-term, like having clear expectations. For pediatrics, we're a little bit more reserved into they typically tend to see an endocrinologist or a nutritionist, you know, adults, they just have more access to it, if you will. So they can go to places like a med spa, for instance, to get all this medication. So it's, it's very much like they get a prescription, they fill it, and they're kind of like on their own. In pediatrics, we tend to be a little bit more control, more um, structure and so forth. So we tend to, or I tend to like build a meal plan for my patients. We calculate how much protein the patient should be having. We're meeting every month and we're touch basing almost every week. So we can make sure that we're doing it at the right pace. Because a lot of times I adjust my medic- the medications up or down, depending on what the needs for that person is. 
in your practice, you know, obviously deal with the medical and clinical side of things when it comes to, to weight loss, but you also have to deal with the psychological and the uh, mental side of things. Sure. So talk a little bit about in your practice, what you do to help teens deal with the mental and the psychological aspect when it comes to losing weight, being obese and things like that. You know, weight loss altogether, like just having a weight situation, either if it's gaining weight, because believe me, when I tell you, I also see patients for the other spectrum, they're trying to gain weight, and they're struggling to gain weight too. weight is such a triggering thing. And you know, a lot of times when they come and see me, the first thing I ask him is, do you want to know your weight? And is that something that is going to stress you out? And so on the scale, there's like a way that I can like just cover the the number so they don't see it because it can be pretty stressing for them and they're not going to connect on the visit after seeing that number that is all they can think about and it's like you lost them right like so i usually try to engage having our conversation and not necessarily do the whole visit around that number because to be honest this is a lot is just behavior changes it's like pattern changes and it's going to take time like A lot of these kids didn't get overweight or obese overnight. So same way, it's not going to go away overnight. It's a lot of coaching. And again, in my practice, I am fortunate enough that we have a lot of access. So my patients know, my teams know that they can text me, they can call and there's really like they're getting me. So a lot of times we're talking on a, I'm not going to say daily basis, but a lot of them do <laughs> That's quite a bit because they know that they need that all or, you know, like Thanksgiving, for instance, like, is it okay to eat this or that? It's like, it is absolutely okay. Everything is going to be moderation. And when you see food as fuel and not necessarily as a way to calm down your anxiety or you're eating because you're bored or, you know, like, and you see it more as I need the energy. My body needs a fuel and you see food as that. You develop a better relationship with food, but it's not going to happen overnight. That's the truth. The mental portion is so huge. Absolutely. Now you mentioned drugs like Ozempic. At what age do you begin to prescribe medications for teens in terms of weight loss? Yeah, actually, the recent guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics that were released almost a year ago. I think it was January, yeah, of this year. Now we are starting at the age of 12. So as young as 12 years old, we can talk about using the peptide therapies, which are like the Ozempic, uh, Wegovy, all of that falls under the umbrella of GLP-1, which stands for glucagon-like peptide 1. It's a medication that actually is not new. We have been using it for the last 10 years, but now it's just... It's now it's popular, right, you know, right. but before we were using it in diabetes, in type two diabetes to control blood sugars and whatnot. And as a result, a side effect of the medication is that it makes you lose weight because it acts in three different fashions. So first is that it turns your center of hunger in your brain and turns it off. So then you're less hungry. And then it goes to your GI tract, your like gastrointestinal tract and slows down how fast food moves from your stomach and out of your system, right? So it makes it slower. So then you're less hungry. So one, you're not as hungry. And two, you feel fuller for longer. And then the third aspect of it is that 
it makes your insulin work much more efficiently. And so these patients that were on insulin now are not on insulin anymore because their insulin is working better. Because remember in type two, like we reviewed, is not a lack of the key mm. or a lack of the insulin, it's just a resistance. So it just helps insulin work easier so then they don't need to be on other medications. And because there's in a way caloric restriction because they're not eating as much, then they're, they're losing weight. So now we know because we have been seeing the usage on kids even for so long that it is pretty safe to use it. Now, side effects are going to be there because every medication has a risk for side effects. And this is why I was mentioning earlier, education is so important. Like we just need to prep them about what to expect and what to do for X or Y potential side effects and try to minimize them as much as possible. Now, the last thing a family or a parent should do is bombard or attack a kid when it comes to losing weight. So what are some of the, uh, or what is a, a, I guess a perfect way or a better way for parents to have a kid buy into a weight loss program? Well, I think the first thing is now to understand that obesity is a disease. In the past, we thought, okay, you're eating too much and you're not exercising and that's why you're obese. And here we are and now it's a punishment. And now we know that is not I mean, that's not always the case. You know, there are some cases that that can right. be, but that's not always the case. Now we know there are so many other factors that influence in weight gain in a person. We have genetics, we have ethnicity, and we have other environmental factors and things in the foods, in our environment that can be impacting on our genetics because we are being exposed to it. On top of eating extra calories or not moving enough, like those are extra things. But I think the first thing is to understand as a parent that every child is not the same. You may have one child that is dealing with it and having a second child that is the complete opposite. A lot of times I see this in clinic and parents are like, I don't get it. Like little Jimmy's like this, but then Tommy looks like, I'm like, they're two different kids. They're two different biologies. And we just need to understand that and just give them the best we can. So one is not to shame them. I mean, wake stigma is a real thing, unfortunately. And then just like support them. I don't necessarily do a lot of caloric restriction in terms of carbohydrates in pediatrics because kids need carbohydrates for growth. But as they get older, then we can play with that and like play with the distribution of how much more protein and less carbs and all that. Again, that is all personalized. I'm not saying in general, please don't cut carbs on your children. That's not safe. But <laughs> we basically build a plan for that person, depending on how old they are, depending on our goals. And that's something also that I think it will be good is to work on small goals, smart, small goals, one at a time. Like you wish your child will lose a hundred pounds. Don't tell your child you need to lose 100 pounds. I mean, it's just not going to be helpful for anybody. Right. <laughs> and that leads me to my next question, because arguably the hardest aspect of a healthy weight loss program is the diet. So talk a little bit about what you do in your program in terms of building a diet program. Yeah, absolutely. So again, depending on the person, age, uh, weight, and, and the goals that we work together to build, then we calculate how much that person needs to be eating in terms of all the groups good fat, protein, carbs. And depending on our progress, we just tweak 
things around. So like I said, I try to see them initially at the beginning. They need me a lot more. So I see them month to month. And then every month we'll just tweak things around. A lot of times all they need is that, is that consistent coaching and adjustment on their diet. Other times they need a little extra. Now we have medication. I'm not an anti-medication doctor. I, I see it as a great tool depending on the situation. I also don't believe in just putting you on medication and, you know, wish you well. It has to be, all the pillars need to be there. And so we just start with one and kind of like go branch out from there. Now, obviously the second part of that is the exercise piece. How do you go about getting a kid that comes into your practice who may not be very active, getting them to start being active to help along with that weight loss program? Great question. I think the first thing is knowing your child, right? Like, you know what your child likes and what your child does not like. If your child enjoys being with you as a family, why don't we all, we can start walking. Let's just go and walk in the park or do something that is like he or she likes. Likes to ride bicycles, let's try that. Likes to be on riding a scooter, well, let's try that. And then like try to give yourself as a family a goal. How about we sign up for a 5K as a family just walking it? At the end of, you know, like the quarter. So we all kind of like work towards that. It's like a fun thing because you're doing it as a family. And that way it doesn't feel like you're isolating that little boy or little girl because it feels like a punishment when he or she's the only one doing it. You lose the fun. They don't want to do it. So I'll say first thing is to try to do something that he or she likes. If he doesn't like to do things in group, you can always, this works for some of my patients. I have um, somebody that I'm thinking right now, everything, every suggestion suggestion I made, it was like, no, I don't like it. No, I don't want to do it. No, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. And so we settle with 20 minutes on the treadmill, walking uh, 3%, watching his favorite show. So like a lot of the treadmills nowadays, you can even like stream from them. So, yes. hey. He's going to watch TV anyways. Right. <laughs> Why don't we let him walk while he's watching TV? And like a plain walk is not going to really do a lot for maybe like you and me because we're a little bit more conditioned. But for somebody who has been just sitting on the couch, a walk is a walk. It's right. a hard work. And then all we have been doing is increasing his incline percentage. So we went from 15 minutes three times a week to 20 minutes, three times a week. Right now, we're, that's all we're doing. 20 minutes, three times a week, a 3% incline. We have work on his diet. We've been together for three months. He's down 22, almost 25 pounds. So, I awesome. mean, he's doing pretty good for, like, just having that restricted amount of movement. But that tells you right there that that body is stressed out just with that. Right. Now, on average, how often does a patient have to come back and see you when they're on the weight loss program, the exercise program, you got their medication going? How often do they come back to see you to kind of monitor where they're at and how they're progressing? When we start, I see them monthly, to be honest. And we talk on the phone or text messages so much more because honestly, the more contact you have with that person, it's more accountability. So it's less chance for them to like give up right as things are more established and like our smart goals are more established then we tend to space our visits but i really need to feel comfortable that before we move to spacing our visits like our nutrition is up to speed and we're in a good place in terms of the weight loss has been pretty sustained and everybody's kind of like on it at home because if it's just the, the child 
honestly, it just doesn't work. It has to, it has to be imperative, a family ordeal for this to be successful. A support staff. Mm -hmm. All right. So finally, what advice or tips do you have for parents to help their teen make the lifestyle changes for a healthier lifestyle? Well, I mean, I think from the standpoint of exercise and movement, again, try to find something they like either as a group or as a solo person, like if he just likes to watch TV like my kiddo, then let's work, let's meet you where you are and kind of like go from there. In terms of nutrition, I'll say probably nutrition sometimes is harder than having them move. For those that like to cook, some kids actually know a lot about nutrition even before coming to meet me. So if he or she likes to cook, let's try to find recipes that are somewhat similar to what they like with small variations, or try to introduce a little bit of healthier options mixed in with the things that they like. Let's take, for instance, rice, you know, and I heard this from a a friend of mine who's also a pediatrician, white rice. Okay, well, no, no negotiation, white rice, and that's it. Well, then add just a little sprinkle of cauliflower rice. And work with that for a, for a little bit. And then you little by little are going to start changing the, the ratio about how much cauliflower rice versus white rice. And just, again, it's not going to happen overnight. You mm-hmm. have to be dressed in a lot of patience. <laughs> but <laughs> it can absolutely happen if you're committed, if you're invested, and you're willing to put the time, because it's really not for the faint of heart. <laughs> That's right. So Dr. Polly, how can folks reach out to you and how can they follow you? Thank you. Well, my Instagram handle is at the endocrine co. So I'll spell that is T-H-E-E-N-D-O-C-R-I-N-E-C-O. And my website is www.theendocrineco.com. And our number is 407-537-7066. Well, Dr. Pauly, again, I really appreciate you taking out your time and your busy day to talk about this topic. I really appreciate you. And hopefully we get to have you back on sometime soon. I love that. Thanks for having me again. Sure. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Pauly for joining the show. So what are the three takeaways from today's episode? Number one. Find foods and activities that you enjoy that can help you develop a healthy lifestyle. Number two, take small steps to create and maintain a healthy lifestyle. And number three, parents, create a sound support group to help your child succeed. That concludes episode number 72. If you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you share it with a friend. If you enjoy this podcast, I ask that you subscribe. Please tune in for the next episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Take care.